Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. It's Friday morning, August 25, about 8.30 in the morning in our nation's capital, and time for this week's Reporters' Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Welcome. Good to see you, and uh, what a week it's been. Donald Trump made news this week by showing up and by not showing up. Last night, he made news by showing up to be arrested, booked, and fingerprinted. Only the fourth time any president or former president's been subjected to that treatment, and all four times it was Donald Trump himself in just the last two months. But this time, Donald Trump had his photo taken, a mugshot that'll last for the ages. On Wednesday, he made news by not showing up for the first GOP primary debate in Milwaukee, even though he's the runaway frontrunner, leaving the stage to eight challengers who, for the most part, ignored him and tore into each other. Well, whether this is good for the country or not, it is like catnip for political reporters, three of the best of whom join us this morning to take a look at this week's news. David Jackson, National Political Correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? All right. Welcome back. Lynn Sweet, columnist of and uh, Washington Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times. Hello, Lynn. Welcome back to you. Why, thank you. And hi, Bill. And hi, everybody. Okay. And joining us for the first time on the Bill Press pod, but a regular on the old Bill Press show, Arthur Delaney, senior reporter at HuffPost. Good to reconnect, Arthur. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, so uh, he walked in as President, former President Donald Trump, he walked out as inmate number P O one one three five eight O nine. Hey, Lynn, uh, this is certainly one for the history books. Whatever you think of it, right? Well, well, I think that mugshot is going to end up in the National Portrait Gallery, where they have, uh, for our listeners, if you've never been there, they have a whole gallery of historic presidential uh, photos. Right now, there's a photo, uh, or usually they're paintings. Now, there is a picture in the Donald Trump, you know, when it comes to him, everybody gets in place. It's a picture of him. I think it ran in Time magazine, but it's blown up so it looks portrait type like. Now, I think they have another one to replace it with. But in all seriousness, what do I make of it? Uh, I make of it. How many times can you use unprecedented? What's a new word? Every day for Donald Trump. Right. And I'm, I'm seeking for that new word because what could I say except, you know, we have, we have a few buckets. One is the legal bucket. Is this a good case? And that is interesting. But I think for the moment, not as uh, important as why do these accusations, as Chris Christie said at the debate, why does this show this is somebody, legal stuff aside, this is somebody who shouldn't be president. 
that's the that is the question. That's what, as a political reporter, I am trying to figure out why we're at a intersection of mm-hmm. law, politics, civil life, policy, uh, people, and overturning the elections that we're in the place we're in. And Arthur, this seems to be, or t- tell me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that this one has more weight maybe than some of the others. Main, one reason, because Donald Trump's not alone here. There's a whole cast of characters uh, that have been charged along with him. How do you read it? Well, that's right. And it reflects the uh, the breadth of the uh, RICO statute that they're charging him under in Georgia, which allows prosecutors to go after mob organizations. Uh, and that's why the indictment is so long, describes things that were happening in other states besides Atlanta. Um, but it's totally unprecedented. It's never been used in politics, this statute. And the, the legal fight immediately will be about whether the case is removed to federal court. And uh, you know, we've talked to legal experts who say that shouldn't happen, but you just never know what federal judges are going to say. I think in the, uh, the circuit where this would be considered, half the judges were appointed by Trump. So it's, a, it's an unprecedented situation, and, and we just have no idea what's going to happen. But Arthur, just one quick follow-up. I'm not an attorney. I don't think you are, but these are, these are charges under Georgia state law, correct? So what's the argument for moving it to a federal court? He's going to say, I was a, a federal officer, and what I was doing was part of my job as, mm. as the <laughs> government. And, so, and obviously, the prosecutor right. is going to say, no. You were running for office. You were a candidate when you did that stuff. And by no means does pressuring state officials to commit crimes count as what the federal what a federal officer is supposed to be doing as part of his job. Right. So, David, um, Donald Trump spoke to reporters on the tarmac uh, after he left the uh, the j- uh, prison jail, whatever it is. And um, uh, well, here's his excuse and what this is all about. We've heard this before, um, but Donald Trump on the tarmac last night in Atlanta. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. This is their way of campaigning. It's election interference. So I want to thank you for being here. Uh, so, David, this is the argument. If you're running for office, you are above the law, right? <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it for sure. He, he, he's got to defend himself somehow, so he's going to go with it's a politically motivated uh, prosecution, and we'll see how it works. Um, I got to tell you, though, having just gotten back from Milwaukee, there are a lot of Republicans, including Republicans who don't like Donald Trump, who agree with him. And I, I think that there's a you know, the, the other side is there's a lot of suspicion about this prosecution and, and really all of the prosecutions. There are questions about all of them. And uh, we're, we're headed to a, a very difficult situation here. Well, it, it, I don't know. I don't want to read too much into it. I mean, Donald Trump sounds a little flat there, right? I mean, right. like. Not well, the, I think that's a good point, too. I, I was, you know, when I was up there, I, I heard and I've talked to some other people that, uh, yeah, he's he's getting increasingly upset. Um couldn't make up his mind whether he even he, he even talked about going to Atlanta on Wednesday night opposite the debate itself. And so he he contrasted the whole idea that 
this is good for me and I'm going to put it in their face with the idea that he didn't really want to go. So he was all over the map in terms of scheduling. And I understand he's getting quite upset about this whole stuff and he's having trouble processing it and dealing with it. So that's another thing we're going to have to look for down the line. But yeah, you, to answer your question, yeah, I think he is more subdued and I think he's really feeling the heat. Uh, and Lynn, the big question everybody's asking is what impact any of this could have on the uh, Republican primary and on the general election. Obviously, it's very, very early, but what's your read? Well, unless the Republican rivals do something different than they did at the debate in Milwaukee, it will have no impact because they don't want to uh, take the obvious line of what is otherwise conventional political behavior, and that is, oh gosh, is this, is this, in any other case, not the stuff you would use against a rival. Well, you know, we like Trump policies. We like what he did, you know, fill in the blank. You like uh, economic, immigration policies, foreign affairs. But there is not a reason to nominate somebody with all facing the legal and moral questions surrounding his attempts to, if nothing else, overturn the election and try and make the case. No one is willing to do that except Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson in a clear way. Nikki Haley at that debate, by the way, uh, had a really good point to make. I've been focusing, and we have, on his behavior the last few minutes, but it was during the Trump-Hence administration that the debt went up. I forget what mm. the number is. It was in the trillions. So if if they're not even willing to take on Trump in that way, not even willing to uh, go on a policy matter, uh, what are we doing here? Except perhaps auditioning for other, and this is not my original idea, for other spots in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in, in a Trump cabinet. And if I may, one of the, the up, one of the up-and-coming candidates is Vivek Ramaswamy, who said in the debate that President Trump was the best president of the 21st century, and why on earth didn't somebody just turn to him and say, then why the heck are you running? <laughs> well, you know, Brett, Brett well, Baer, the, one of the moderators, said he actually regretted not asking that exact question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot that the moderators regretted not doing about that debate. Uh, but let's get into the, I want to save the debate for a little bit more, more on this stunning, um, uh, arrest and booking, uh, last night. Um, what are there, is the timing of this and does it make a difference? And do you think there's any chance that this thing could come to trial before the primary or before the general election? Oh, I don't know. I, I, nobody knows. I, the, the, uh, the first thing, like we said, that will happen is the effort to take it to federal court. And yeah. I, this has just never happened before. I think the, uh, the, the government in Georgia and the federal, the, the Justice Department both want to make these cases go as quickly as possible. And the obvious strategy for Trump's defense is to delay it as much as possible so that he can win the election and pardon himself or or nullify the uh, the prosecution. Yeah. But there's no we, it's it's simply unprecedented the the constitutional scholars out there the legal experts that's what they'll tell you we don't know 
uh, what will happen in these cases. By the way, Arthur, I wanted to ask you about the crowd too. You were you were in Washington when Trump arrived, right, to be booked in Washington. Uh, what was the crowd there compared to the crowd in Atlanta? I saw Marjorie Taylor Greene's crowd in Atlanta, and it looked like there were several dozen Trump supporters there. And I, the the crowd at the federal courthouse in Washington D.C. was also probably several dozen Trump supporters, but like several more dozen Washingtonians gawking and protesting against Trump. <laughs> I, there there aren't big throngs of people at these. I think a lot of Trump, you know, diehard Trump supporters consider these uh, potentially traps for them, and and the and the most diehard Trump supporters who would potentially stage a uh you know a, a violent demonstration are all in jail hmm. so david uh, i want to ask your take too on this impact on the election um a friend of mine happens to be a republican this week said to me just please stop he's not a trumper please stop indicting donald trump because every time he's indicted he he goes up and up in the polls and yet politico was out this morning i didn't have a chance to study it in great depth but politico magazine has a new poll were taken after these charges in Atlanta were filed. A half of Americans said they believe that Donald Trump did commit crimes. The majority say that these trials should be held before the election so we know whether he's guilty or not. And over a half of them said they wouldn't vote for him were he convicted of a crime. So are we supposed to just conclude, like most people do, that these indictments are only helping Donald Trump and will not hurt him? What's your take? Uh, well, it's certainly helping him right now. And in fact, paradoxically, the more the indictments there are, the more Republicans, normal Republicans, as I call them, feel like it's uh, <laughs> it's a political hit job. It's it's having a kind of an odd effect out there. But for right now, I mean, and I think the uh, I think the poll is indicative of something that a lot of Republicans are wondering about. And that is the long term. I mean, as this drags on, as evidence is presented, there's a possibility if, if this thing is, is tried in Atlanta, it could be televised. People are going to get a good look. And there are already Republicans who are sick of the entire mess, whether they like Trump or not. So the the feeling out there is it could well have a gradual effect and reduce his standing in the polls. And I, I think it's, I think that's unquestionable because I, I just don't think he's going to get 50 percent in the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primary. I think his number is going to come down. The question is how far it comes down. Right. Well, by the way, that's a new oxymoron, I think. Right. Normal Republican. Is that? Uh... Well, you know, there are, there are some out there. And I that's the one thing is, I mean, I've been uh, been to South Carolina, New Hampshire and Milwaukee in recent months. And that's the one thing that struck me is that even, you know, rank and file Republicans, old school Republicans, even Republicans who don't like Trump are just have qualms about these prosecutions. And I think it's something that Merrick Garland uh, and, and uh, his aides should take seriously. All right. Well, I think it's very clear that all three of you are just uh, can't wait to jump into talking about the debate Wednesday night. Uh, so let's move on from Atlanta uh, to the debate. But first, a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, and then we'll be back with today's Political Reporters Roundtable with Arthur Delaney from HuffPost, Lynn Sweet from the Chicago Sun-Times, and David Jackson from USA Today. Today's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the great men and women of the Iron Workers Union. The Iron Workers Union, that's really the, they're really the backbone 
of the American labor unions. Uh, they're the ones that put up all the structure, the rib structures, if you will, of some of our most iconic structures and buildings in this country, the Golden Gate Bridge at St. Louis Arch, the new World Trade Center here in New York City. And they are most busy today rebuilding America's infrastructure, thanks to that infrastructure bill. Uh, passed by under under Joe Biden's leadership. The iron workers say the sky's the limit. That's their slogan. They live up to it. We salute them, their president, Eric Dean. Thank them for their great work rebuilding America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. And we're back on this Friday, August 25, with today's Reporters Roundtable. Joining us, Arthur Delaney from uh, HuffPost, Lynn Sweet, Chicago Sun-Times, David Jackson from USA Today. Well, I'd like to start with each of you. Um, your take on, I hate to use that phrase, but the winners and losers maybe just overall. Then we'll go back and look at each of, not each of them, but the, maybe the, the uh, front runners of the debate or the ones who made the most mark in the debate Wednesday night. Um, David, start with you. Overall, um, what was your take? Uh, I don't think it's going to mean much in the long term. I think Trump's absence, it, it basically eliminated the, the major issue in the Republican primary. And Fox's decision to restrict discussion of Trump to 15 minutes, I don't think did any good anyway. I think, you know, I, I think, frankly, I think all the candidates did fine for what they with what they were and uh, you know, made their points and got their issues across. But it's, it's it really felt like the B team. And the fact that Trump has such an incredibly large lead at this point and the fact that he wasn't there just, just negated the whole thing, in my view. Uh, anybody do particularly well? In their terms, I think all of them did pretty well, I, I, I think. Uh, the one thing that struck me is, is watching the debate and seeing the reaction. I've never seen a gulf of reaction to any candidate as, as to Ron DeSantis because I have a lot of sources who felt like he did well and did what he needed to do. And, of course, I have others who felt like he did terribly. So I've never seen such a gap of analysis regarding one candidate's debate performance. But beyond that, frankly, I think all of them did pretty well. I, I just wish, I'm sure Tim Scott wishes he'd had more airtime. But other than that, I, I think I think they were all fine. All right. Line them up. Uh, one through eight. Arthur, what was your take? Uh, who did who did well? Who was outstanding? Who should have stayed home? <laughs> David called it the B team. I would say it was like a kid's table. It wasn't really <laughs> what was going on. It's not the main thing here. Uh, but I, I agree that everyone was OK. I thought Vivek Ramaswamy stood out the most. But that's mainly because he is the newest. He's the most novel. And he was uh, pretty aggressive. And I was also... I thought Mike Mike Pence was pretty aggressive as well, and it was notable how much he seems to dislike Ramaswamy. Right from the start, he was sniping at him, and this is reflective of the the sort of new look, more outspoken, more aggressive, more anti-Trump version of Mike Pence that we've seen in the last two months. So, Lynn, um, two hours, <laughs> uh, eight people. Uh, anybody stand up? Yes, Nikki Haley. Now, uh -huh. I, I respectfully disagree with this, this very impressive panel that everybody did what they had to do. I think by definition, when Tim Scott barely gets to say anything because he couldn't figure out how to insert himself when he wasn't called on, is just if we were scoring this on, uh, if this was like uh, figure skating and you do it <laughs> on technical points as opposed to artistic uh, contribution, he loses some points here. Now, the other guy who I would lose points with is how Vivek Ramaswamy 
with his arm wave and interruptions, uh, I, I have to, again, get my head around why this pers political persona is something people find appealing with this technique of constantly talking over people. We've seen this before, but it gets old. Somebody starts talking and say, hey, hey, you're wrong. You're smashing my record. And they keep talking, even though they know, they know that the other person is talking. It, it is a technique that I don't think is, could be used more than once or twice because then you're onto it. So I. Um, yeah, but Lynn, is it, isn't he Donald Trump, right? I mean, when you think of somebody who kept interrupting in a debate, you think of Donald Trump. Yeah, so so again, these are the things to get our my, my head around in terms of how do I score the debate? Because I think Nikki Haley did a great job because she was able to position herself as somebody who is willing to, you know, so this is on technical points. Was yeah. she able to say things that are meaningful, in a sense, speak the truth? Where the main thing is, if you want to be the nominee, she speaks against the person who's the front runner and why the front, she should displace the front runner. Here, yeah. In fact, uh, David, here is uh, what I saw a lot of people thought was the, um, the most interesting exchange of the evening. And it is Nikki Haley, who, like everybody else on stage, seemed to have had enough of Vivek Ramaswamy and, and just wanted to take him down. Uh, so she, she, I think she did. Here's this exchange. Lie. Stage, You've been pushing this lie want, all week, Nikki. You want Nikki. to go and defund Israel? Yes. You want to okay, give let me address that. China? I'm glad you, you brought that up. Go and give you I'm going to address Russia? each of those right now. You are there you have it. Your watch, so you the will reality make America is, less safe. You have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The, it the shows. foreign policy experience that you. So, so, David, you were there. It seems like the crowd turned against Vivek and and you know went for Nikki in that in that moment. Well, parts of them. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. I think the, uh, Haley and the other candidates did a pretty good job of exposing the Ramaswamy's lack of experience and, frankly, his extremism on a lot of issues. The thing is, a lot of Ramaswamy's approach and his issues are popular with a certain segment of the Republican Party. So I fully expect him to get a bounce out of this debate. I think his numbers are actually going to go up in the short term. I don't think much of his long-term prospects, but the fact is he prospered from this debate uh, he, I think he did get an advantage from this debate, but it won't help him down the line. As far as Haley, yeah, forensically, I thought, yeah, she did the best job, but I, I just don't think her candidacy is, is going to, just, I just can't see this Republican Party nominating a woman of color to be president. So, I mean, it's just as simple as that. She's an outstanding candidate, but I, I just don't think the, the moment is for her. Can you see them nominating a, a member of the Hindu faith? No, no, and that, that's what, that's another reason. I don't I don't think Ramaswamy's long term prospects are very good, but we'll see. So, so Arthur, everybody said this was Ron DeSantis's night. This was a time he was going to show he was the alternative. This was his opportunity. Uh, did he take advantage of it or blow it? I thought his performance was middling. Uh, there, <laughs> there was a a moment where the moderators asked him about whether Mike Pence had done the right thing on January sixth. And he just sort of whined. Yeah. And, and then they said, well, you didn't answer the question, Governor. And then he continued not answering it. And then Mike Pence himself was like, hold up. Everyone has to answer this question. 
and mm-hmm. and DeSantis said, "Oh, fine, I have no beef with Mike." And it was a yeah a, yeah. a strange sort of whiny moment for him that I thought was emblematic. Like he was he was doing set pieces where he knew what he wanted to say and he didn't like getting knocked off script. And when he when he did, it was in this sort of churlish. He delivered his his lines in this whiny fashion. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised nobody's mentioned Chris Christie yet. So, Lynn, Chris Christie had a job. Uh, he's been the most outspoken critic of Donald Trump, uh, and uh, he knew this crowd wouldn't like it, but he didn't hold back. Here's Chris Christie. Someone's got to stop normalizing this conduct. Okay, now, and now whether or not. Whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. And you know, this is the great thing about this country. Booing is allowed, but it doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the truth. Not going to be the nominee, probably, Lynn, but did he he have a good night? Well, I... This is before I give a direct answer. Maybe my yeah. colleagues know who built this audience. And maybe it's not a great idea to have an audience because that means that the nation has a, a focus group reacting and we don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, the booings and the applause is kind of instructive to me for a react of presumably a lot of Republicans in the audience. But I'd like to know. Who are they to, in order to evaluate the usefulness of the reaction? Now, having said that, this is where I wish the Fox News anchors had asked this question. And not, and, and, and if they're going to do a show of hands, they have to then say orally the names of who's up and who's down to lock it in. Do you believe Donald Trump lost the election? Mm. Yeah. And that is a threshold question. It goes to denialism. Never asked. Never asked. And it should have been. And that's why the tact that that Christie took actually was smarter for a candidate. I'm asking a question as a journalist who wants uh, to kind of tidy up where people stand on this, because I think it is revealing. He is making the argument that this is conduct beneath the president. So that that line sweeps in everything. Denialism, lies, uh, chaos uh, that he brings in that statement. I would have liked, however, to have people on the record on this point. Right. Uh, so, David, Donald Trump uh, didn't show up, right? Um you, as you indicated earlier, it's probably the number one question facing the nation, certainly the Republican Party. Um, and yet it was one hour into the debate before Donald Trump's name came up from the moderators. And they uh, apologized almost for spending 10 or 15 minutes only on it. So how do you did Donald Trump in the end make a mistake by not showing up or was it a smart thing for him strategically to do? Well, I hate to cop out, but I don't think we know yet. Um, my gut tells me it was a smart thing for him to do because he's still going to be far ahead. But like I say, down the line, if his uh, numbers start to erode, this is the kind of thing people are going to come are going to refer back to. So in the long term, it could hurt him. 
you know, he's, he's probably not going to show up for the California debate on September 27th. So we'll be discussing this whole thing yet again. But uh, uh, I, I was very frustrated with Fox News' decision to ha- on how to handle the Trump matter. You know, they basically gave it 15 minutes right smack in the middle of the debate. And as you mentioned, they were almost apologetic about it. But Trump is the issue in this Republican Party. There's just no getting around it. A lot of a lot of Republicans don't like to be reminded of that, but that's just the way it is. And it, they, they should have devoted more time to it. Well, <laughs> uh, we recall that Martha McCallum, after a few minutes, those 15 minutes, right, she says, well, we promised we would talk about this and we have. So now let's move on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it was very, Something. yeah, it was, you know. So former president's been indicted four times. He's going to be facing, he could be facing four criminal trials during an election year. That's an issue. Other candidates need to weigh in on that. Uh, Okay, so if that was a weak moment, uh, Arthur, I saved this question for you because I think you may be the only one who heard of this country Western singer uh, of the members of the panel before the debate Wednesday night. Uh, So of all the important issues facing the nation at this time, you know, the economy, Ukraine, climate change, fires in Maui, whatever, uh, at two hours, the first time the eight candidates without Donald Trump are on stage in the Republican primary. And the very first question that Martha McCall, the most important question Fox News wants to ask this panel is, what about this country Western singer and his new song, The Rich Men North of Richmond? Here it is. But I know that you do, cause your dollar ain't shit, and it's tax to no end, cause a rich man, cause a rich man. So Governor DeSantis, why is this song striking such a nerve in this country right now? What do you think it means? Our country is in decline. This decline is not inevitable, it's a choice. So, Arthur, I think uh, that, that Ronald, Ron DeSantis was going to give that answer no matter what the question was, right? But <laughs> is this really the, the most important issue for Fox to start with? It's obviously not, Bill. I think they wanted to go in uh, and set the mood, I guess, or uh, they, they should have reckoned that Ron DeSantis would not respond to the question at all. He, he said the country's in decline, and then I think... Toward the end of his answer, he he mentioned the song, but there was simply no effort by any of the candidates to actually engage with that question. So it it was a failure. I I, I think they rec- they figured maybe somebody would say something interesting about it, but mm-hmm. that didn't happen. And uh, in retrospect, kind of a mistake. Yeah, probably just helped him sell more records, right? I don't know. Uh, well, Lynn, I'm surprised you know so much about the debate. Because I figured you would have been watching the interview Trump with uh, Tucker Carlson. What, by the way, what? So whatever happened to that? I've seen so little news about that interview. Did you catch any of it? And well, I had a strategic decision to make: Do I watch the debate unfolding in real time, or do I watch a week-old interview with Tucker Carlson <laughs> and boop, 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 and write a deadline? Uh, column with my takeaways. Uh, I checked real fast to see if any news came out of it, if other outlets were reporting of people who had seen it. And remarkably, Tucker Carlson was able to do do the trick of talking to a former president for an extended period of time without interruption of other people. 
and not have a solid news story come out of it. So I took a pass. Uh, and David? <laughs> oh, no. I, I mean, I saw, you know, I, I, I didn't even, I haven't even seen it, really. Um, I will point out they're bragging about the numbers that Carlson got and, uh, you know, the number of hits that that episode got. But uh, someone who's in that business told me that if you call up X and the Carlson interview comes up, that's counted as a click, even though you, you don't necessarily uh, latch okay. on to the actual. So the numbers are inflated is what I'm saying. So. They're going to, Trump and his ilk are going to brag about what r- records they set with the Carlson interview, but I don't think anybody else is really paying attention. It's just Well, but wait, may, if I may jump in here as somebody who, who does look at my own, I'm going to call them the throwback term tweets and impressions. <laughs> uh, I understand that it is an imperfect, an imperfect yardstick here, but it does show interest, even if it's, even if... Uh, I understand that people should not take that they listen to it. I understand that when I have a tweet that links to a story, I know that because if I have 2,000 impressions, why don't I have instantly see 2,000 hits on a story? Okay. But it still shows something's happening out there. Not and 200 million worth. <laughs> no. But something. Well, what, what something. Struck- Even if it's, uh, what did Fox get? 12 something million viewers? It right. shows something is still out there. Well, what, what surprised me was that given that opportunity, given that Donald Trump obviously wanted to upstage the debate, that there was no news at all that came out of that interview, right? Uh, at least none that I've seen. I detected uh, none. And none. I haven't yeah. personally gone through everything. Interestingly, uh, Tucker Carlson uh, himself didn't seem to promote any scoops <laughs> there weren't any arthur i want to close by i want to circle back to a question i meant to ask when we were talking about uh atlanta because you know you cover congress and the congress the response of congressional republicans to donald trump's latest indictment is jim jordan announcing yesterday chair of the judiciary committee that he's going to hold hearings on fanny willis the district attorney of fulton county georgia what is this all about? And um, didn't he do the same thing in New York? And where's it going? He did the same thing with the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. And they uh, they just want to amplify the, the Trump notion that there's a witch hunt against mm-hmm. him, except to make it seem a little uh, more professional. They call it weaponization of government. Um, they also propose legislation that would shield former presidents from prosecution by local DAs. So it's it's uh, it's theater and also these legislative shows of support, but none of them are going anywhere. I, I think it's uh, relatively easy for these prosecutors to blow off their subpoenas. Uh, Alvin Bragg engage with them a little bit, and and I think most people expect Fannie Willis not to make that same decision. She'll uh, stay out of it uh and it's just it's just part of their their sideshow that they're constantly doing there in the house that will also uh, probably include a joe biden impeachment or uh, or at least an impeachment inquiry right so um uh, political theater i think you uh, summed it up there pretty well and with that a big thank you to our today's panel david jackson arthur delaney and lynn sweet um we always ask you, uh, you know, we're so busy recovering so many stories, but usually there's one story in the week that captures our attention, makes us stop in our tracks and at least think about it, if not laugh or cry about it. Our favorite story of the week. 
Uh, where do we go? Lynn, um, can you start us off, please? Uh, my favorite story of the week is my own that is posted <laughs> at suntimes.com where I did an interview with the new archivist of the United States, Colleen Shogun, about the little-known federal Obama presidential library that sits in the suburb, the Chicago suburb of Hoffman Estates in a former furniture showroom and warehouse. Fascinating details of what's inside of this temporary Obama presidential library. So this is not the the big library that they've been working on, right? This is see, a- that's why I did this story. Ah, ah. There is no, there is not going to be a physical Obama presidential library. What Ooh. is being built on the south side of Chicago is a museum, a forum, an athletic mm-hmm. center, gardens, and a Chicago public library. Because Obama in 2017 realized, or his people did, that they didn't want one in there. But when he left office, National Archives and Records Administration uh, was led to believe he was going to put one in his Obama presidential complex, and he didn't. But they have been processing his records in the official library for now, and the strip mall in the Chicago (laughs) suburb. All right. All right. Breaking news and and bragging about it. uh, Suntimes.com, please. And rightfully so. Suntimes.com. Okay. Uh, David, how about you? What caught your attention? <laughs> um, from the world of Hollywood, I, I noticed that Oppenheimer, which is a very fine film, has yes. now set a record. It's the highest grossing film that never made number one on the box office list for any week. <laughs> really? It's also It looks like it's destined to be the highest grossing R-rated film in history, although it still has a little bit of ways to go. And I find this to be a very good sign because it's a, a very serious, probing movie and uh, it's the kind of thing Hollywood has turned away from in recent decades. Uh, we've we've had some very good films on cable networks, HBO mm-hmm, and the like, mm-hmm. but it's it's been a while since Hollywood has done something like this. And to see the success of Oppenheimer is very heartening and provides hope that the, they will continue to do continue to tackle serious subject matter in an entertaining way. Incredibly important movie with a very very powerful message about uh, nuclear weapons, uh, the threat of nuclear weapons, which most almost nobody's talking about these days. Right. Uh, absolutely, and Arthur Delaney, uh, with all that you're covering, what caught your attention? Well, because I respect Lynn Sweet, I'm going to do what Lynn Sweet did and praise my own story <laughs> okay. about the, about the uh, uh, a profile of the January 6th vigil that happens every night at DC Jail in Southeast DC. I uh, I think people may have heard about this. It's the it's led by the mother of uh, Ashley Babbitt, who was killed in the Capitol on January 6th. What what people might not know is that. This woman has uh, met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and as, as many as 30 other lawmakers. Donald Trump has called in to the vigil to give his support, and he raises money for these people. And this is a phenomenon that uh, th- this, this hugging of January 6th that is, uh, even though we might think we hear about it a lot, I, I think the re- Republican support for the actual perpetrators of January 6th is uh, an undercovered story. Wow, I didn't know that. I hadn't heard about that at all. Good job, Arthur. Yeah, I'll look, I'll look that up myself. It's kind of in your neighborhood. 
I know, not that far away. I just know that Marjorie Taylor Greene had led some protests there, but I didn't realize it was a nightly vigil. I'll check that out. Uh, so I got to say, my favorite story of the week, I come to you from uh, New York City, where Carol and I came up to see a couple of uh, museum shows this week. And we arrived in New York yesterday. I was on my laptop on the train coming up and saw a story about New York City on Bloomberg about a new restaurant in New York City which happens to be open September 21, so it's not yet quite open. It's a new Korean restaurant, and it is located right near Penn Station, where we got off the train, got on the subway to come north on, in Manhattan up to Columbus Circle. And at that, in that subway station, <laughs> that Herald Square at 32nd and Broadway on September 21 is going to open in the subway station, I keep repeating, a new Korean restaurant. Um, now, it costs $2.90 to take the subway, I can tell you, because I had to buy a new ticket yesterday. Uh, this restaurant in the subway station is going to be a prefix restaurant, 15 courses, starting at $225, not counting tax and tip, uh, which just kind of blew me away. I just wonder how many people are paying $2.90 for a subway ticket, subway fare are going to be able to go walk into this restaurant and pay two twenty five for fifteen course Korean dinner. Uh, and I thought eating at Subway meant getting a sandwich. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very good. This is taking Subway to a whole new level. <laughs> and uh, of course, it's not open yet, so we didn't eat there, and I will never eat there. Uh, at that price. At any rate, it just says a lot about this economy. I'm not sure what it says about the economy, but some people are doing very well in this economy. It certainly says that. And with that, again, a great big thank you. Lynn Sweet joining us from the Chicago Sun-Times, David Jackson from USA Today, Arthur Delaney from HuffPost. Good to have you all here. Thank you so much. And thank you, all of our good friends around the country for joining us for today's roundtable. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll be back on Tuesday and talk about how the media is doing these days, particularly the conservative media. Our guest, Oliver Darcy, the media critic for CNN. So have a great weekend again, folks. Uh, we'll see you on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>